There is only one There is only one There is only one Found worthy Amen Well this week and Next week, we're taking a break from our study through the Ephesians, uh, the letter to the Ephesians, so that I can uh, preach into our party, which we will be holding one week from today, which you will be attending. You know, over and over in the Old Testament, Israel was commanded to party. I counted once, and there's something like 80 days of commanded feasting, and only one day of commanded fasting, and that day we now commemorate with the banquet of communion. In Deuteronomy 14, Israel commanded, is commanded to take one-tenth of their GNP, the gross national product, and uh, uh, go to the place that the Lord designates and uh, blow it all on a party in his presence. One-tenth of the GSP, the gross sanctuary product, I figure would be, everything we make, I figure it would be something like at least a million dollars, and maybe four, five million dollars, all for one party. Well, we have no evidence that Israel ever uh, obeyed the Deuteronomic party command, outrageous party command. However, Isaiah prophesies that the Messiah will obey. Listen to this, Isaiah 25, 6. On this mountain, this high land, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. He'll feed the whole earth. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, not some, but all, all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. You know, God just loves parties. And God is a party. God is three persons, one substance, and the substance is love, and that's a party. The kingdom of heaven is clearly a party to end all parties because the end, you see, is a party. I think that's why we work so, we work so hard. We work so hard so that we can party. And, and when Americans want to party, they go to Las Vegas. In one of my all-time favorite movies, six Americans go to Las Vegas looking for a party. But they're each chosen uh, out of the crowd. They're chosen from the crowd and called to an upper room where they meet the owner of the casino. Uh, the six are joined by others, making a total of 12, and the owner, the master, gives them a commission. Thank you all for coming. I'm Donald Sinclair. I own this hotel. So, who do you like, Claude? A young woman in a black coat. She looks desperate. Yes, but she has her mother with her. That could slow her down, hmm? Perhaps. Now, 563 miles from here is a little town called Silver City, New Mexico. In uh, downtown Silver City, there's a train station. You can't miss it. As you go in the front door, there are some lockers on the right. Mr. Grisham, do you have the keys? Six identical keys. They all open the same locker. That's locker zero, zero, one. 
Inside the locker is a red duffel bag. Inside the red duffel bag is two million dollars. In cash, fifties and hundreds makes a pile about so big. First one there keeps it all. <laughs> oh, and I've put little transmitting uh, devices in your key ring so that I can keep track of you. And uh, that's it. Go. You, you just can't pick people at random. I can do anything I like. I'm eccentric. Go. <laughs> I can do anything I like. I'm eccentric. And God can do anything he likes. He's holy. And so I think we, we figure um, that what God will do is uh, he'll send us on a, a race like that. We assume that life is a competition. And those that win get to go to the big party and God and his angels are watching to see who it is that will win. Just like Donald Sinclair and his rich friends are watching. You see, they're all betting on who will beat their neighbor and win the $2 million. The movie's called Rat Race. Have you seen it? If you haven't seen it, I command you to go see it. The movie's called Rat Race, and this life feels like a rat race. Lily Tomlin said, the trouble with the rat race is that even if you win it, you're still a rat. So is heaven your reward for winning the rat race? Or perhaps the reward for winning some sort of spiritual rat race. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask that you would help us to preach. Help us to hear your logos, your word, our Lord Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. In Luke 14 through Luke 16, there's a whole lot of partying. In Luke 14, at a Pharisee's house, at a party, as they discuss the great party, right before Jesus tells the story of the great banquet, the great party, Jesus says this, when you throw a party, invite those who cannot repay you. So that's why we're throwing a party next week. Not to get new members, not to help with our budget, not to feed our egos, but to be not repaid. Invite those who cannot repay you. And, and then he said this, you will be repaid at, in, or with the resurrection of the just. That's Luke 14. Luke 15, the, the Pharisees get mad at Jesus for partying with tax collectors and sinners. From the wording in the text, it appears that Jesus actually hosted parties for people that could not repay him. Actually, for people that cost him his life. Uh, they would take his life, and yet he gave his life to pay for their lives to justify them. That they would be the resurrection of the just. Well, in Luke 15, Jesus tells about three parties. A, a shepherd that finds one lost sheep and throws a party. A woman that finds one lost coin and throws a party. A father that finds one lost son, a prodigal son, and throws a party. Next week, we'll preach on Luke chapter 15. But there's a whole lot of partying in Luke chapter 14 and 15, so by Luke 16, it's natural to ask, who's gonna pay for all these parties? And how are they gonna do it? 
Luke 16, verse 1. Jesus also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a steward and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. Now, a steward is someone who manages another person's possessions. The steward is squandering the master's goods. Squandering. It's the same word that's used to describe what the prodigal son does with his father's money in the previous chapter. The steward is taking his master's goods and acting as if those goods are his own goods. And so the master called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your stewardship. In Greek, turn in the logon of your economias. Turn in the logos of your economy. Turn in the logic, the reasoning of your economy. Turn in the account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. And the steward said to himself, what am I gonna do? since my master is taking the stewardship away from me. I mean, the steward probably lived in the master's, in the master's house, part of his master's household. What am I going to do? I'm not strong enough to dig, and, and I'm too ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do. Decided what to do so that people may receive me into their houses when I'm put out of the stewardship. So summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. You see, the debtors appear to be farmers that are leasing land from the master. And so the hundred measures, the hundred butas of olive oil is this man's rent. Now that's equal to like eight, 900 gallons of olive oil. The next man owes a hundred koras of wheat. That's 1,000 bushels of wheat. I mean, we're talking about a lot of food that could feed a lot of people. And oil and wheat usually don't only refer to physical food in the Bible, but spiritual food. 100 measures of oil, the steward says. Well, sit down quickly and let's write 50. The steward is still operating as the steward. The debtors, you see, do not yet know that he's been canned and told to turn in the books. They think he still speaks for the master. I mean, it would be as if a representative of the visa company showed up at your house and said, now I'm speaking as an authorized representative of the B B Bank of America and the Visa Corporation. Um, may I look at your bill? He looks at your bill, your visa bill, he says, Hmm, hmm. Well, well, let's see. How about, how about you owe a thousand dollars? Well, well, let's, let's, let's write 500. How about that? You owe, you owe 100. Let's write, let's write 50. Uh, how about that? Would you like that? Okay, well, sit here and just sign here and, and it's a deal. Sign here and it's a deal. I mean, if, if a representative of the visa company did that, what would that be? Well, that would be good news. You see, this steward is giving away his master's goods, goods that he had previously squandered on himself. In financial terms, he's forgiving his master's debtors in the name of the master in order to endear the debtors to himself so that when he gets kicked out for embezzling his master's goods, he'll at least have a place to spend the night. And so he says, sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. And so the steward steals from the master and gives to the debtors. The master finds out. And here's the kicker, verse eight. The master 
commended the dishonest steward. More literally, the master praised the unjust steward. Even more literally, the text reads, the master praised the steward of Adikias. He praised the steward of unrighteousness. The master praised the steward of unrighteousness for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world, says Jesus, are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I'm telling you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous mammon, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal habitations, the eternal skene, the eternal tabernacles, the, the sanctuary, eternal sanctuary. Mommy, tell me a Bible story. Well, okay, honey. Luke chapter 16. Well, there was this conniving, dishonest manager who defrauded his, his boss in order, in order to win friends so they'd all think well of him and save his own tail. <laughs> and Jesus says, we should be like him. Do you see why this parable has been such a problem over the ages? Julian the Apostate, the famous emperor in Rome who, who apostated, I can't remember, early in the first century. Well, he, he basically blamed this parable. Did he's the Messiah? You see why this parable has been a, a problem, why it's been controversial. Why on earth would Jesus make a con artist an example for us? Well... Who else could we relate to? Hey, I'm not a con artist. Are you calling me a con artist? Maybe you're thinking to yourself, I'm not a crook. I'm not a crook. I, I own my house. I bought my house. I, I used cash. Well, who'd you buy it from? The builder? What'd they build it with? Lumber? Where'd they get the lumber. Well, they got it from trees. Did they make the trees? Only God can make a tree. Did they make the trees or just cut them down? You see, I think you're living in a stolen house, eating stolen food. Can you make food? I mean, all food is life, right? Plant life, animal life. Can you make life? Maybe grow life, maybe nurture life like, like a flower, a uh, farmer. I mean, you can, uh, a farmer or a gardener that grows flower, a farmer that uh, uh, helps grow chickens. I mean, maybe like a steward, but you can't make life. All you can do is cut it down, rearrange it, put some heat and eat it. So you live in a stolen house, eating stolen food, purchased with laundered money. And you say, hey, wait a minute, I earned that money. With what? My time, my talent, my brains. Well, where'd you get your time, talent, and brains? Did you create your own time, talent, 
and, and, and brains? Did you earn your time, talent, and, and brains? Did, did you earn you? Did you create you? And, and you may say, well, yeah, I kind of did. I kind of did with my, my good choices. Well, did you choose the you that made the choices? Did you choose the chooser? No, I don't think so. Now, you could say, well, God gave me me. So me is mine. You could say that. Unless, of course, you call yourself a Christian. For then you have surrendered you um, to God. You have surrendered you, and it's no longer, and it's not, uh, to, to your own credit, lest any man should boast. I mean, you do realize, don't you, that if you call Jesus Lord, you are calling him owner or, or master and calling yourself a steward or a slave. And you see, stewards and slaves do not have private property. And by the way, that's what mammon means. It means possessions, property. So when Jesus refers to unjust or unrighteous mammon, I think he's maybe referring to all mammon. And so if you call Jesus Lord and have any mammon you're a steward of unrighteousness. And probably an unrighteous steward. Whoa, whoa. Hang, hang on, Peter. <laughs> this is America. We're into private, private property. And, and that's the way people are, Peter. That's the way people are. That's the way you are, Peter. That's the way you are. What do you expect from me? Well, that's exactly what I expect from you. We are all unjust stewards of unrighteousness. In other words, we're sinners. We sing, I surrender all. Then go out of church and sue our neighbors to get more private property. We're sinners in a fallen world. So maybe this parable has something to do with us and our world. Have you ever noticed how everything in our world dies and we die. I mean, it's like the whole world has been taken or like plucked from the source of life. James wrote this, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like the flower of the grass, he will pass away. And you know, riches or goods are like like flowers, they're beautiful, right? We see that they're beautiful, and so we pick them for ourselves, and then they die. Toys, they lose their luster. New houses get boring and old. Even people get boring and lifeless if I think that I own them. Or even if I think I own me, or the good in me, once plucked, it all becomes lifeless. I mean, I mean, our, our love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faith, I mean, are those things that I own like mammon? Like a flower that's been plucked or fruit that's been picked. You know, we can't make fruit. We can't make a flower, but we pick them. 
sell them, pocket the cash, as if they were our own property. We pick flowers, but we can't pick life. And so the flowers die. We die, and then we use them to adorn our graves, as if we could cover our own death with stolen life or, or stolen fruit, as if we could stand before the owner of all things and say, it's my love, <laughs> my joy, my peace, my patience, my kindness, my goodness, my faith. It's, it's mine. I made it. It should be credited to my account. I wonder if Adam and Eve even thought of picking flowers before the serpent tempted them to pick the fruit from the tree. Well, maybe anything that we think we possess is mammon and unrighteousness, including ourselves. Many years ago, a little mild man who worked at a cemetery would receive a letter each week from a certain woman. Enclosed in each letter would be a money order for fresh-cut flowers to be placed on the grave of her son. One day, after several years of this, a car drove to the cemetery, and a chauffeur uh, got out of the car, walked into the, uh, the, that, that entryway booth at the gate, and said to that uh, little man, the clerk, he said, um, the lady outside is too ill to walk. And so would you come out with me and talk to her? Waiting in the car was a frail elderly woman. Her eyes could not hide some deep, long-lasting sorrow, pain from the past. In her arms was a great heap of fresh-cut flowers. I'm Mrs. Adams, she explained. Every week for years, I've been sending you a money order. For the, for the flowers, the flowers, the clerk exclaimed. Yes to be laid on the grave of my son. It was her dead son. So you see, the son really didn't receive the flowers. The flowers were for old Mrs. Adams. I've never failed to attend to it, chirped the, the little man. I came here today, Mrs. Adams said, because the doctors have let me know I have only a few weeks left to live. I shall not be sorry to go. There was nothing left to live for. But before I die, I wanted to drive here for one last look and place the flowers myself. Dead flowers placed on a dead corpse by a dying woman. If only for a moment to cover the obvious. Sorry to break it to you like that. But even little old ladies are stewards of unrighteousness. Ever since the garden, we've all become stewards of unrighteousness. The entire world is a pursuit of unrighteousness. Mammon. And one day, the master will demand an accounting. One day, he'll say, hey, what are you doing with those flowers in your hand? What are you doing with my house, my car, my daughter that you call your wife? What are you doing with my blood in your veins and my breath in your body? What are you doing with my bread and my wine? That day will come. 
and he's already informed you, you must give an account. A logos. Foolishly, some will try to pay their debts with flowers that they picked from the master's garden. They'll try to pay for stolen fruit with stolen fruit. They'll say, look, my love, my, my joy, my peace, my patience, my kindness, my goodness, my gentleness, my faith, my faith, my faith, my love is a gift from me to you. I'm paying as payment, a gift from, from, from me to you, payment from me to you. It's fruit I picked, handpicked from a tree I found in, in the middle of the garden. Romans 14, 12. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. How are you going to account for yourself with yourself? What account, what logos for your economias will you give? There will be an accounting. Well, the steward in our story isn't good, but he is smart. He develops a plan based on the only hope left to him. He bets everything on the mercy of the master. His master is just. He does not endure injustice, and yet he's deeply merciful, for he hasn't prosecuted the unjust steward, thrown him in jail until he pay every last penny. Interestingly enough, in, in all of Jesus' parables about stewardship, the good steward is not the responsible, safe steward, but always the steward that trusts his master's mercy and invests accordingly. And now this steward bets everything on that mercy. He forgives debts in the master's name, trusting that the master will honor these new covenants because he honors the glory of his own name. Well, undoubtedly, Within minutes of the authorization of these new deals, these new covenants, the village must have just become abuzz with, with words of, of praise and adoration, abuzz with the good news. I mean, spontaneous parties must have erupted in the streets with people singing and saying, the master, the master is exceedingly gracious. Blessed be he and blessed be the feet of him who brings this gospel, this good news. Oh my goodness, if he wants to come over to my house for dinner, he's more than welcome. If he ever needs a place to stay, he can stay at my house. And then the master walks into the village, sees the parties, hears the praise, finds the steward and says, well done. Now you're getting it. You're getting it. Well done. You did great. I like it. I like it. I love it when you give my gifts to my debtors at my expense. I love it when you forgive sinners in my name. I love it when you proclaim gospel, the good news of grace. It's his kindness, the master's kindness that leads us to repentance, to change. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance, writes Paul. And so maybe at this point, seeing his master's kindness, this steward not only is smart, but now becomes good. Not only knows about the good and managing the goods, maybe he is good. Not only picks fruit, but grows fruit. Faith, hope, and love just growing all over him. And not only imitates love, but becomes the body of love. Perhaps, we don't know. 
But we do know what Jesus is telling us to do with our mammon. Jesus said, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous mammon. You know, flowers die, but they contain seeds. And if you plant the seeds in broken ground, they live. Jesus said, make friends by means of unrighteous mammon. Those flowers that you already picked, use them to make friends, to make friends, so that when those temporal flowers fail, they will receive you into the eternal habitations. That must be the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, like I told you, this old lady, Mrs. Adams, came to place the flowers on the grave of her son. And she, and she said to the clerk at the entry booth, before I die, I wanted to come and place the flowers myself. At that, the little clerk made up his mind. He spoke his mind. You know, ma'am, I was always sorry that you sent the money for the flowers. Sorry? Well, yeah, because the flowers last such a little while. And you see, there's no one to smell them. There's no one to, to see them. There's no one to enjoy them. It, it was a shame. Do you realize what you're saying, said Mrs. Adams? Oh, oh please, don't be angry said the clerk, I, I belong to this visiting society, state hospitals, insane asylums. People dearly, people in those places, they dearly love flowers and they can see them, they can smell them. Lady, lady, living people, there's living people in places like that. There ain't no one in that grave. Not, not really. The old lady didn't answer. She sat there for a moment, mumbling a, a prayer to herself and then she drove away. The little clerk thought he made a terrible mistake. But some months later, he was astonished by another visit. Doubly astonished because uh, this time Mrs. Adams had no chauffeur. She drove the car herself. I take the flowers to the people myself, she said with a smile. You were right. It does make them happy and it makes me happy. The doctors don't know what is making me well, but I do. I got something to live for. So what was making her well? What was making her happy? The eternal habitations. I tell you, says Jesus, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous mammon, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal habitations. He who is faithful in very little is faithful also in much, and he who is dishonest in very little is dishonest also in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will entrust to you the true? Now, now riches is added by the translator. So Jesus literally says, if you haven't been faithful with unrighteous mammon, who will entrust to you the true? What's the true? Well, I think, I think it means this much. Hanging on to mammon will make you stupid. But even more, it means there is not only a stewardship of mammon, but there is a stewardship of the true. If then you have been 
not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will entrust to you the true? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give to you that which is your own? I mean, maybe we're going to get something that is somehow our own. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You see, it is a terrible thing to make mammon your God. But there is a far worse thing, and that is to make God your mammon, your private possession. Verse 9, I tell you, my friends, and Luke has already told us in verse 1 that Jesus is talking to the disciples, the 12 disciples, just like the 12 tribes of Israel. And you remember Israel had a stewardship. God had made it very clear from Abraham even in Genesis 12. You are blessed to be a blessing. And in you, all the nations, all the families of the earth will be blessed. But Israel listened to the liar and believed that life was a rat race, and so took the blessing to be their own possession. And so now in Luke chapter 16, the promised blessing is literally walking in their midst, and the leaders of Israel already plotting on how to turn them into mammon, little bits of body broken and bloodshed. You know, if we consider the bread and the wine to be our own private possession, could there ever be a more unrighteous mammon? If you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will entrust you with the true? We took life and that's false. He gave life, and that's true. What is the true? Better yet, who is the true? Who is the way, the truth, and the life? Well, at the end of the Gospel of Luke, 24, verse 47, the way, the truth, and the life entrust the 12 with a stewardship, quote, that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed, not bartered, like some kind of business deal, proclaimed in Christ's name to all nations, all peoples. Then throughout the book of Acts, the second part of Luke's, the disciples proclaim the forgiveness of sins, quote, forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, as if our certificate of debt had already been entirely canceled, as if our debt had already been entirely paid, forgiven. You know, it's a strange thing to proclaim the forgiveness of sins when the sinners really didn't sin against you. Ever thought about that? And maybe they never do sin against you. You know, after King David took Bathsheba and married Uriah, he wrote this, in the Bible, against you and you only have I sinned, O Lord. You see, when we take from another fallen person, we steal what? Stolen good. Stolen goods. And so our sin is truly against God. And so he pays, he, he always pays, and so he must be the one that forgives, and he has already forgiven, and now he asks us, his church, to announce it in his name. 
You know, when my kids were little and I'd have a fight with, with Susan, which of course I hardly ever do because I'm a pastor, but anyway, when that would happen, I would grab the kids, maybe Jonathan, Elizabeth, Becky, or Coleman, we'd run to the store, buy some flowers, some fresh flowers, we'd come home, and then I'd say to the one of the kids, hey, would you like to hand the flowers to mommy? And that was a stewardship that they always said yes to. Yes, I, I would like that. And so Jesus said to the 12, proclaim forgiveness to my bride in my name. Hand her the flowers. But now imagine if Jonathan, for instance, showed Susan the flowers and said, Mommy, these flowers are for you. If I get some ice cream. Daddy loves you. If you give me 10% of your income, go to my class and join my club. Well, that would make me furious with, with, with my child, with my son, my daughter that did that. It would make, it'd make, me, make me furious. I mean, the father must say, I paid for those flowers. How dare you make those flowers your mammon? Do you understand? We're not just stewards of flowers. We're stewards of God's manifold grace. First Peter chapter four, verse 10. We're stewards of the mysteries of God. First Corinthians four, verse 11. Uh, we're stewards of the gospel. First Corinthians nine, verse 17. Like Paul in Ephesians three, two, we have a stewardship of grace and it's not cheap grace. It costs him everything. We have a stewardship of body broken and bloodshed. And if we think it's mammon, if we think it's something that we can possess, that we can buy and sell, like fruit that we've picked from some tree, it's judgment and it's death. But if we receive the blessing for what it is, if we receive the blessing as a gift, it's life and peace. You see, grace is judgment. This table is judgment, the judgment. We proclaim judgment, but we don't judge the judgment. In other words, this can never become our mammon. The church is constantly tempted to turn Jesus into mammon. And so we say things like this. This is his body broken. This is his blood given to you. If you take our class and do what we say, you're forgiven. If, and then we control the if. And so we don't proclaim forgiveness. We bargain with forgiveness. Just like old Israel, just like the Pharisees, we squander grace upon ourselves and then refuse it to give it to, to, to others. Maybe we've listened to the liar, the master, the ruler of this world. And so we think life is a rat race and we must possess the party at the end as if the great banquet was mammon, as if amazing grace was mammon, as if we could possess it rather than be possessed by it. Well, if you think amazing grace is your mammon, you better give it away as quickly as you possibly can. 
For you cannot receive forgiveness unless you also forgive. You can't know grace unless you dispense grace. In other words, if you think grace is mammon, you don't know what grace is. And what you think is heaven is actually hell. And, and you see, there is, there is um, an outer darkness. Uh, there is uh, this place where men weep and gnash their teeth. You know, in that movie, uh, Rat Race, they all chase the mammon and their lives just literally become hell. In fact, that's kind of what makes it a comedy. Toward the end of the movie, the money, the, the mammon gets stolen by these thieves and then tied to this hot air balloon and the 12 agree to band together, at least for a little bit, they agree to band together. They agree to cooperate in order to beat the thieves and then split the mammon once they get it. As luck or providence would have it, they chase the mammon in the dark until it lands on this dark stage. And you see, I think the end of this movie is, is an awful lot like the end of the world. Where is it? There's a there now that is one hell of an entrance. Whoa! It's Smash Mouth! What's going on over here? What's this? Mining. Jesus, how much is this? Two million dollars. <laughs> two, two million? Two million dollars, everybody! Great things happen? I don't know. We're going to go ahead and check the tow board right now and see where we're at, okay? Come on, baby. Let it roll. Come on, baby. for Feed the Earth, and these are some of our children. I don't know who you people are or, or where you came from, but God bless you. She said you are just like the 12 disciples. Um, I'd like to introduce the real star of tonight's show, 
I can honestly say that none of us would be here tonight if it wasn't for this man. He's the man with the plan, Mr. Donald Sinclair! One of the wealthiest men in the world! Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Donald Sinclair! Get a camera on him, there you go, nice shot, there he is! Mr. Donald Sinclair and his partners want you and the millions of people watching at home to know they plan to match whatever you raise tonight, dollar for dollar! Somebody once told me the world is gonna roll me I ain't the sharpest tool in the shed And she was looking kind of dumb with a finger and a thumb In the shape of an L on her forehead So Donald Sinclair is crying because the stewards of unrighteousness just got righteous. They just became the righteous stewards of unrighteousness. I mean, they have won a lot of friends with unrighteous mammon. They have joined the party and they have been liberated from the hell that they had created believing Donald Sinclair's lie. Donald Sinclair, the owner, is crying because he's a worldly master. But Jesus is our master. And where is he? What's he doing? Well, he's in the crowd, laughing and cheering as if all those people were his tabernacle, his sanctuary, his habitation. You know, he said, whatever you do unto the least of these, my brothers, you do to me. And so it's a bit shocking when you think about it. But much of the church argues that at the end of time, that crowd of people will be endlessly lost or tortured by God himself while we, the church, stand on the stage clutching grace to ourselves as if it were our own mammon. We must think that the party is our reward for winning the rat race. When in fact the party is our reward for having lost it. In fact, the party is eternal judgment upon the rat race. Eternal judgment upon the little dark, lonely, self-centered prison of isolation in which I constantly trap myself. The party is eternal judgment upon hell. And there is an outer darkness. There is a consuming fire, as Jesus will speak of at the end of this very chapter, 16, Luke 16. But, but you see, hell is not an end in itself. It's purification for those that refuse to party with people that can't pay them back. People like Lazarus. It's purification for those who think God's grace is their own mammon. The end of the world is not the people of the world endlessly burning in flames as we, the church, enjoy God's grace upon the stage watching them burn. The end of the world is the revelation of the eternal habitations. And this is what it means to be received into those eternal habitations. Somebody I'm 
For that reason, the master became the steward. For that joy that was set before him, the night before we took, he gave. He took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat. I give it the night before you take it. And in the same manner, after supper and having given thanks, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant, the new covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. He pays. He pays with his own body and his own blood. And he's already paid. He is the righteous steward of our unrighteousness. He takes our certificate of debt and cancels it. It's, it's like he says, well, well, let's see. Let's see, Peter. Let's, let's take a look at this, uh, these, uh, the, your debt here. My goodness, you owe restitution for an awful lot of sin, page after page after page of sin. And you owe for my house. Uh, did you see that? You, you, you owe for my car. Um, you owe for my daughter that you uh, call, call, call your wife. In fact, you owe for everything that you think you own. But tell you what, Peter, let's sit down quickly and rewrite this debt. And then he takes a, a big red pen, dips it in his own blood and says, how about zero? How about that? How about you owe? How about you owe zero? How about, Peter, you're forgiven for all. All is forgiven, Peter. I'm, I'm, I'm giving you everything. I pay everything, Peter. I pay, I pay everything, and that means that you, Peter, must pay nothing. Now, would you agree to that? We'll sign right here, and it's a deal. Tell you what, Peter, you can stay in my house. You know what, I'd, I'd kind of like it if you drove my car. Would you drive my car? Oh, and, and Peter, um, I'd like you, I'd really like you to stay married to my daughter, your wife. You, you see, Peter, maybe you didn't realize this, but I'm actually giving you everything. I'm giving you myself and everything with me. I'm giving you everything, Peter. You see, it's all grace. Actually
actually, Peter, it's always all big grace. You didn't know that. It's, it's all grace. And uh, Peter, by grace, you get everything back. And that means there's one thing that you cannot keep. Your pride. And Peter, have you noticed that it's your pride that destroys every party you attend? It's pride that destroys every party there is. But it's this that makes every party there is. And the party is what is. I am. And so he calls you to his banqueting table to taste the great banquet. We invite you to tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup, and this morning all the cups are going to be juice, and there's going to be four stations. And then this is what I'd like you to do. I'd, I'd like you to work on your party skills. I'd, I'd like you to dip this in the cup, turn around, and then give it to the person behind you. Place it in their mouth or hand it to them if, if they freak about that, but be nice about it, okay? And, and if you need uh, gluten-free wafers, they're right here, and you can come and get one and hand it to the person, or you can just do it yourself because we won't get all legalistic about this or anything, okay? But you see, this morning I'm asking you to believe the gospel and to believe it for the person behind you. Amen? Let's worship. Because you are grace, and everything you create is then created by grace, and everything we receive, we receive by grace, and anything else is darkness, illusion, lies, the abyss. Thank you, Jesus, that you have conquered the abyss in our own hearts. It's in your name we pray, and we thank you. Amen. So did you see what happened? This morning when we had communion, a bunch of stewards of unrighteousness got righteous. It was judgment. You came to the table and hopefully you thought to yourself in some form, in some way, I'm responsible for these little bits of body broken and bloodshed. But then Jesus says, yes, but what you took I forgave. And then you took that little bit of grace and you gave it to the person behind you. That's righteous. The party's righteous. Jesus makes you righteous. Righteousness is not your possession, but righteousness is something that possesses you. That's, that's, that's good news. So may you uh, believe the good news, and may you live the good news. May you come to the party next week and party. You see, your whole life is to be really a party. Um, it's to be a, a stewardship of dispensing grace. So if you want to come to the party next week, and you, uh, we have one member that gave a big gift to uh, pay most of the party,
Um, but it's really all of our gifts. So if you want to add to that, that's great. Um, but the thing that I want you to give more than anything else at the party is this. And that doesn't mean threatening people with the gospel, okay? It means just loving people like Jesus commanded you to do. It means seeing people the way Jesus sees them. It means smiling at people, hugging people. It means looking for people that seem like they're not enjoying the party and then just helping them enjoy the party. And so next week, I really, I really hope, I really hope that you would invite friends and family, uh, invite anybody you meet on the street, and we'll just have a great party, okay? But the party is really a sign of what our life is to be. And, and sometimes it really hurts to give, you know that, but it's all to be a party. And our sorrow turns into laughter, our mourning turns into dancing. Um, God will be glorified in you and in us. So let's believe the gospel, live the gospel, have a great week. If you'd like prayer, members of the prayer team are down front here. They'd love to pray with you. We invite you to go downstairs and uh, work on your party skills right after the service, okay? Have a, have a great week.